Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. In this episode, we're looking at Matthew 12, 1 to 14, 12. And here we see Jesus disputing with the Pharisees about what is lawful to do on the Sabbath. We read about Jesus casting out demons. We encounter a cluster of parables, and we're told about the death of John the Baptist. Today, we're talking to Dr. Jordan Ryan. Jordan Ryan is assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and he is the author of The Role of the Synagogue and the Aims of Jesus, which came out with Fortress Press. Uh, he's also uh, has written an essay in this volume, which we actually interview a number of contributors from this mm -hmm. volume here. Uh, the book is called Matthew Within Judaism, Israel and the Nations in the First Gospel, edited by Anders Runison and Daniel Gertner. By the way, Anders and Jordan and I have a connection, mm. uh, which is that we were all at McMaster University at one point, and that's where I actually met Jordan. Right. Uh, Anders, a lot of Canadians yes. in the podcast. You is. are this season, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> so Jordan was doing his PhD at McMaster. Was it under Anders? That's right. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay. So he was doing his PhD there un under Anders Runison. I was doing my MA there. The essay that he wrote in this book, yeah, which so the title is uh, The Sermon on the Mount as Synagogue Teaching. So Jordan, I, you've been doing these archaeological digs, but you also write on the gospel. So tell us about how those interests emerge and how they interact with one another. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's basically ever since I was an undergraduate student, I realized how important it was um, to be reading the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, I think, in light of their Jewish context. And the Gospels are set in first century, you know, early Roman Galilee. Um, and the reality is, is that we actually know quite a bit about everyday Jewish life in first century Galilee through archaeology. And archaeology provides a whole lot of information that is kind of unique to archaeology. Um, I have a friend who always says that the only new information we get about the biblical world comes through archaeology. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I think, I think it's, it's kind of snappy. <laughs> and um, the reality is, is that when I was a graduate student, I was really interested in passages in the Gospels that dealt with synagogues. And it just so happened that a synagogue had recently been discovered at Magdala on the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And um, I think it was in like my first month of doing my PhD, Anders Runison, who was my doctor Vodder, told me basically that I was going there over the summer, um, and that it would be really important for me to do that. And I haven't looked back since. I've been on excavations almost every year since then. Great. So what, Jordan, what's the most challenging thing for you to understand about this passage that we're going to be looking at, chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, 12? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it's there's, there's a few things that would be kind of easy to pick, like almost every parable. Um, I actually think that, you know, the parable of the sower is one that I think a lot of us think we know it well because there's an explanation in the text. But the reality is that the explanation needs interpretation. So that's a tough one. But I think if I was really going to say, like, these three chapters, I think the hardest thing here is trying to interpret it, again, sort of within um, its Jewish context and in a way that's, I think, also sensitive to Jewish-Christian relations, not just in antiquity, but also now. Um, because there's, there's a lot of conflict in these passages, or at least, um, there's disagreement and dispute. Um, the Pharisees show up a bunch and the Pharisees are important for Jewish history and also for modern Judaism. And so trying to approach these, these texts with some sensitivity and also some understanding, um, of Jewish and Christian history, I think that actually might be for me anyways, that that's what I find really challenging about these passages. Well, let's start looking at this particular text. And to get us started thinking about it, how does Matthew 12, 1 to 14, 12 fit into the larger gospel of Matthew, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, kind of like I was hinting at, you do get this kind of rising tension a little bit here. Um, we do get 
a number of conflict narratives throughout this, or at least dispute narratives. Um, you know, some of them I think we're going to talk about. The way that it fits into kind of what comes before and what after is all what's after is also really interesting. Um, almost right before this, you get um, the woes to the unrepentant cities in chapter eleven, um, which hints a little bit at what is going to come. It gets at this issue of Jesus as the sort of rejected figure. Um, it's it's interesting too because he names three pretty important places. Um, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. By the way, all three places have some fascinating archaeological remains being excavated right now. Um, but all that to say, I mean, he's talking about the Galilean villages that he's been visiting. And then in chapter 12, we start to get a glimpse into some of the conflict and dispute that we see taking place in this Galilean context. Um, so there, there's a sense in which you can see chapter 12 um, kind of... I'd say expanding on or maybe kind of illuminating maybe um, the woes to the cities that he presents in chapter 11. You also get this kind of reemergence of John the Baptist in chapter 11, which I think is really interesting because um, this section going into chapter 14 uh, deals with the death of John the Baptist. So you've kind of got this whole section uh, bookended on either side with John the Baptist narratives. So there's something happening there too. Um, exactly what you know scholars are going to disagree, but it's important to know that there's this kind of bookending of the whole thing with John the Baptist. Now Matthew 12 begins with Jesus and the Pharisees arguing about what is lawful on the Sabbath. Um, his disciples are hungry; they pluck grain and eat it on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees charge them with doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And then we have a second interaction where Jesus is in their synagogue and the Pharisees ask him if it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. Now, is there something significant in particular about the dispute over what is lawful to do on the Sabbath? Why is this so important? You know, it kind of gets really headlined as a really significant dispute. What's so important about this? Yeah. And again, I think this is a crucial question for understanding what's happening here. Um, again, I'm going to say, I think it's important for us to understand this in light of its early Jewish framework. One of the things I, that I like to talk to my students about is the fact that um, what's going on here isn't, isn't a question over whether the Sabbath itself is something that is central or good or important. That's taken for granted. What's at odds here a little bit is how to understand what it is to work on the Sabbath. And so um, one of the things that I, I just want to start out by saying is like, you have to sort of note, I think, that the dialogue is actually most relevant within a context in which both the audience and author are invested in some way in keeping the Sabbath. What exactly that means is up for debate, I think, hmm. but also keeping it in a way that honors God. And Within the world of the story itself, the dialogue also only really makes sense if both parties, that is Jesus and the Pharisees, are also invested in honoring God through Sabbath observation. So there's some kind of question here about, you know, what do we really do with the Sabbath? I think it's important also to recognize, um, you know, in in Torah, so first five books of um, of the Hebrew Bible or, you know, what for Christians might be called the Old Testament or First Testament, um, what we get there is, you know, several different places where the Sabbath is addressed. In particular, Deuteronomy 5, you get, I think it's 5, 14, and 15. <laughs> there is this uh, prohibition, right? Do not do any work on the Sabbath. Now, that's an important commandment, but the question becomes, okay, so sure, let's not do any work on the Sabbath, but what then constitutes work? Right, and so you're right. going to get discussion, you're going to get interpretation of that passage. And so in, for example, the Mishnah, which is um, a collection of teachings of the early rabbis, um, which a lot of um, scholars think might have some layers that, that kind of descend from Pharisaical teaching, um, what you get are these sort of oral traditions around what it means to um, to keep the Sabbath. And you'll note, too, if you if you read, there's a whole tractate, tractate Shabbat, you'll notice that there's actually a whole bunch of disagreement over mm -hmm. what exactly it means to keep the Sabbath, what constitutes work and what doesn't. 
different schools of thought. The whole thing, I think, is about trying to build a fence around the Torah, which is something the Mishnah talks about, trying to kind of protect the law itself. It's about trying to honor God as best as you can and trying to kind of do right by God's law. And I think it's important for us to understand that um, the Pharisees aren't trying to um, to be tricky or anything like that here. They're interested in understanding how best to honor God's law. So that's, I think, probably why it's it's such a big deal here. Yeah, and so Jesus jumps into this dispute. And could you walk us through the arguments that he makes here to justify the actions that he and his disciples do on the Sabbath? Yeah, so I, I think what is happening here and again, you're going to get a few different interpretations from this, depending on who you ask. But there's a there's a certain logic. So he makes reference to what David did when he and his companions were hungry. It says in verse 4, he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. And then verse 5, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And so the logic here seems to kind of be that these examples demonstrate that there are exceptions to prohibitions against working on the Sabbath. And they seem to also work kind of from lesser to greater. That is to say, if the temple example is true, the priests working in the temple on the Sabbath, then how much more should it be true for something that is greater than the temple? But the nature, like the nature of the work in the examples, I think is is significant too. The more I think about this, um, because you get this saying afterwards in verse seven, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's citing Hosea. You would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so there seems to be something here about mercy in the text. It seems to imply that Jesus, first of all, sees the work of the priests as mercy in action, which I also think is important, especially, you know, for modern Christians who might not um, think much of the temple cult. It's important for us to recognize that Jesus seems to think that that is an act of mercy. And if you actually look at the original Sabbath law in Deuteronomy 5, um, one of the things that I like to remind my students of is that the Sabbath isn't just for um, you know, kind of landholding males and their families. It's also for slaves and the text specifically mentions that, both male and female. And it's also um, also for resident aliens, that they're also supposed to take rest on this day. Um, and I'm reminded, too, of, of a Luke passage in Luke that I've, I've written on also takes place in a synagogue where Jesus says that the Sabbath is a fitting day for someone to be healed, a fitting day for someone to be set free or liberated. And so, you know, I, I wonder if it's important for us to think about how, um, you know, maybe if this connects to um, our own context a little bit in terms of who are who are the people that don't get rest, um, who continue to work on days when everyone else has rest. And it tends to be, you know, in our context in the U.S., people like foreign workers still um, to this day um, and people, you know, we, we don't necessarily have subsistence wage here in the U.S. And so we might also have people who are working and not getting rest in the same way. So that I, I think that connects nicely to this whole idea of the logic um, that Jesus is presenting here of the Sabbath as um, as a sort of day of mercy. So that's anyways, I, I kind of think yeah. that that's kind of logic here. Now, could that be abused, though? And could someone say, well, as long as my motivation is mercy, I don't need to worry about anything that the law says. Right. I'm just mm -hmm. motivated by mercy. Is that maybe the Pharisees are even worried about this kind of implication? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really possible? good point. Oh, I, I mean, I think it's possible for us to abuse, you know, any text um, <laughs> and try to make it anything, you know, we want. Um, and I think the reality is that here, Jesus's point isn't that, you know, the Sabbath is thus a day that we should all work on, right? Like, I, I think his point isn't to disregard the law. Um, it's how do we interpret the law? And if we understand that, you know, there are already exceptions than trying to get at, you know, how best do we practice the law and what's the Sabbath for, I think is actually honoring the law rather than trying to, you know, to find a way around it. Jesus isn't, I, I think, 
I don't know if you've heard the term Jesus juke before, but he's not trying to do a Jesus juke. <laughs> you know, I, I think he's trying to, you know, in, right. interpret in keeping with the law. Yeah. Though he does say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which I yeah. guess some could take as a kind of Jesus juke. Right? <laughs> like, I'm Jesus. True. I could do this if I want. So how do you understand the Lord of the Sabbath phrase there? Yeah, that's a really good point. So the Lord of the Sabbath. Isn't it, I mean, Jordan, isn't it kind of like, isn't it kind of like I'm the Lord of the Sabbath? I can do whatever I want. It's not, it's not that surely, right? I can just do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's a, that's a really good point. I think what's going on there. That is a, a strange phrase too. Like Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? Um, I've, I've wondered about this before. Actually, I think, I don't know, Ronnie, if you remember, I think we were in a, a, a Gospel of Matthew seminar before, and I mm -hmm. think we, we actually discussed this passage, and I remember thinking then that I didn't know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that, that I've thought through a little bit is um, I, I wonder if, it, if there is something Christological going on here. There's a question about mm -hmm. what does Jesus mean by something greater than the temple is here? Um, some, mm -hmm. some interpreters want to say that it's mercy, um, is the thing that's greater than temple. Some want to say that it's Christological, that Jesus is, is talking about himself. I think more and more, like the more I read this verse eight makes me think that it probably is at least in Matthew's context here, probably meant to be Christological. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if that points at this sort of, um, greater identity that Jesus has in the gospel of Matthew. I mean, there's this whole thing in chapter, well, the early chapters, right? But him being Emmanuel and God with us. But then later you get the very end of Matthew, um, him saying things like all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Right. Um, and so I, I wonder if this has to do with this issue of Jesus's authority and his ability to say, you know, to, to kind of make things binding. So I don't think he's trying to sort of say like, you know, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so I can do what I want on the Sabbath. I think the idea is is that he's claiming an authority for his own um, action and interpretation here and saying that, you know, if in this situation there's an exception for the priest, then shouldn't there be an exception for someone who's greater than the temple? Mm, I see. I see. The um, yeah, that's that's helpful. I mean, one of the rationales I was wondering, too, is that, you know, you think about the Sabbath. Right. It's the time of it's the time of rest. Right. And in some mm -hmm. ways, the time of rejuvenation. Right. The time of life. Right. And in both of these cases, it seems like what's at stake is the life of, you know, the disciples. They need to eat. Right. To have to have life, presumably. <laughs> and, you know, the man with with the hand that's healed, it's a kind of restoration of life. I don't know. What do you think of that rationale? So if the Sabbath, if the goal is to restore life, Right. Then you can do the works on the Sabbath that are necessary for the life, you know, for the life of other individuals, which includes their rest and restoration. I mean, is that kind of in the ballpark, you think, of what's going on here? I mean, I, I like that idea quite a lot. Um, it, it fits in, again, that passage I referred to in Luke. And I know that that's Luke and not Matthew. Sure. Um, but that whole idea of when when Jesus he heals a woman with a bent back in a synagogue in uh, Luke 13, 10 to 17, I think. Again, not going to pretend I've memorized the whole Bible, but I... I <laughs> but I you are, Jordan. <laughs> so I think... So that one, I think I do know again. Um, in, in that passage, he says that the Sabbath is a, is a fitting day for this daughter of Abraham to be set free. Um, and so I think that that kind of coheres a little bit with what you're saying, that it's, it's, it's the right day for restoration um, and I do think there's also these kind of broader themes of God's restoration of his people going on throughout Matthew as well. And, you know, the, these stories, the healing narrative, the exorcism narrative, I think they fit well into that. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, what, uh, I was just going to say, it fits this principle of the Sabbath is made for man and not man mm, for the right, Sabbath. Right, right, right. The, the Sabbath has a positive intention. Right. It's not restrictive. Right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's meant to restore and give life to humans, not to not to kill them. Right. Yeah. Right. The um, what, one other thing that we, we didn't talk about, I don't think, is the setting that this is taking place, uh, or at least like in verse nine. Right. He goes into the synagogue. And I kind of wonder you've kind, you've written about the synagogue synagogue as a location of dis, you know disputing interpretation and teaching. Can you talk a little bit about 
that and how that plays into into these disputes and texts here? Yeah, I mean, I I love to talk about the one thing that no <laughs> that, I, that I know about, <laughs> and and that is synagogues. So yeah, I mean, um, one of the things that both archaeology, I think, but also um, the study of other texts that talk about synagogues really shows us is that the synagogue, it, the term, by the way, um, synagogue basically just means, you know, a, a gathering place or something like that, a place where people come together. Um, and so that's what it is. It really is the, the gathering place for the local town. Um, modern scholarship does tend to talk about there being two different kinds of synagogues, synagogues that are kind of semi-public or associations, meaning they belong to a specific group or like a club or something like that, or a subsect. Um, and then there's sort of the town hall with Torah model of synagogues, which are public synagogues. Um, and it seems like in the gospels, the synagogues that Jesus seems to be engaged with are places that are public. They seem to be open. It's a place where people discuss. Not everyone has the same perspective. Um, okay. Yeah. And so one of the things that we see in, um, in various texts, not just in the New Testament, but also outside the New Testament, is the synagogue is really clearly a place where um, Torah is read, but then also taught, and after teaching, it's discussed. And we can't assume that every synagogue mentioned in the Gospels was set in a building. It could have been that sometimes they, they met in open air. Um, it's expensive to build a public building, um, hmm. but the buildings that we have excavated from this time, for example, um, at Magdala, which I mentioned earlier, where I've dug, uh, the building is really clearly designed for discussion. Um, it's basically you have benches on all four sides of the building, which places the focus of discussion in the center. What that does is it enables and facilitates conversation and discussion, not necessarily with the people beside you, but the people across from you, meaning maybe the people that you don't agree with. Hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian, as I think we mentioned earlier. <laughs> And the layout of synagogues just reminds me of the Canadian House of Parliament. Like it's set up in this in this mode for discussion and discussing the law makes a lot of sense in, you know, first century context. If you're trying to live out God's um, instruction, but also you're thinking that, you know, the way you're organizing your society is organized around um, Torah, then it makes a lot of sense that you'd want to know how best to interpret it and how to put it into practice. And so the synagogue is where that happens. So this, this discussion here, which is all around this question of like the legality of healing on the Sabbath, totally fits into a synagogue setting very well, where you have this back and forth um, and this kind of decision being made about whether it is in fact, you know, legal or not um, to, uh, to heal on the Sabbath. Let's move on to verses 15 to 21 here in chapter 12. And there we read that Jesus healed many. And then Matthew says that this fulfills Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. So how does Matthew see what Jesus has been doing here, fulfilling those verses from Isaiah? Yeah, this, this, is, a, this is another tricky one. Um, what you get is... So you, you get a few interesting statements here. It starts out, um, verse 15 to 16, when Jesus became aware of this, he departed. Many crowds followed him and he cured all of them. But then verse 16, you get this odd statement and he ordered them not to make him known. Now, that is a really common theme um, in the Synoptic Gospels, but especially in the Gospel of Mark. Um, so Mark has this pronounced emphasis on what sometimes is called the messianic secret, this idea that, you know, Jesus will heal somebody or something will happen and Jesus will tell them not to tell anyone. Um, one of the weirder examples, I think, is in Mark chapter eight, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus tells him like right away, okay, so don't tell anyone. Like Peter gets the answer right. He's asking, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus says, okay, now don't tell anyone. Um, it's it's really strange, and Mark doesn't really explain it. Um, Matthew, I think, is offering us here an explanation for what's going on um, with that, because verse 17 says that this was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So he ordered them not to make him known, and this fulfills this prophecy 
Um, it, it goes through this whole thing of here's my servant. And by the way, really interesting that this is a, a servant passage whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So he's doing this proclamation and you can see how that, you know, if you're Matthew, that that kind of works with what Jesus is doing in his gospel. Mm -hmm. But then verse 19 here is interesting. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. Um, That then plays into this whole thing about Jesus telling people not to make him known. And so it seems to be a handy explanation. Um, why is he not making his identity known? Why is he telling people not, not to say anything? Um, it's to fulfill prophecy. Matthew does this a few other places. Um, you know, why does Jesus have to get baptized by John the Baptist? Well, it's to fulfill all righteousness, right? So it's, right. It, it, I think, plays into this whole idea of fulfillment in Matthew. And so the passage from Isaiah He's fulfilling, that's explaining verse 16 about him ordering them not to make him known. It's not connecting right. to his healing in this instance. There's, I mean, there's a sense in which it might. Um, I, I, I mean, there's, who knows exactly what, what, what Matthew ever wanted to do. <laughs> um, but, but I do, I mean, I think at the very least, whatever else might be going on, my sense of it, and again, other people might disagree, but my sense of it is, is that it's, it's really explaining the messianic secret yeah. by, by means of this prophecy. Yeah. I, I think that's when I was reading over this, preparing for this interview, typically my mode of interpreting the fulfillment of this passage has been to look for um, how it's fulfilling the healings. Yeah. Um, but then I did think also, just as you said, well, actually the whole crying aloud you know, he will not cry out. And that actually fulfills exactly what you pointed out of him, you know, withdrawing and not making himself known and telling others not to. That fits really neatly with that. The, um, uh, but uh, also when I keep reading in Isaiah, I'm now I'm in 42, I'm looking for mm-hmm. hints yeah. of healing. And what, one of the ones I see is if you keep reading in verse seven, which Matthew doesn't cite right, right here, he's, you know, he says, uh, I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Now, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if he's, if that's also figuring in, it's probably very hard to tell, as you mentioned, what's going on in Matthew and what exactly he's pulling in. But I mean, do you think that that's a potential possibility also of a kind of secondary fulfillment there? Oh, for sure. And, and I mean, you get, you get something really similar. I keep going to Luke, but you know, in, in Luke four um, yeah. as well, you get, similar language going on um, when he's reading from Isaiah in the synagogue. I, I, I mean, whatever is going on here, it's, this is a servant passage. And so, you know, Matthew's using it in some really interesting ways. I, I, I think that's totally plausible. It might be that there's more than one thing going on here. Um, right. Well, in the, the very next verse is someone who is blind and mute, a demoniac who's blind mm-hmm. and mute, being brought to Jesus. Yes, good. So good. it wouldn't yeah. be hard to make to the, connection, the connection, right? Yeah. Richard Hayes would certainly say, that. see what's going yeah. on yes, there? Yes, yes. We've got some, yeah. got some echoes that's right. that are happening here. Yeah, some important ones. Good. Well, I mean, that's a nice segue to bring us into, uh, into this passage of Jesus uh, casting out the demon-possessed man who is blind and mute. Um, and... So beginning in Matthew 12, 22, we read that Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute. And, I mean, we see this connection repeatedly yep. in the Gospels, right? Um, How do you understand that, that connection between illness, physical illness, and then demon possession? Do you have any ideas? And particularly in this context here, what's going on? Um, yeah, I mean, we do have this repeatedly where Jesus casts out demons and healing, and the two are often tied together. Not always, sometimes healing has nothing to do with casting out demons, right? And sickness has nothing to do with uh, casting out demons. And we have the case in the Gospel of John, right, where people ask, who sinned, you know, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, well, neither, right? It has nothing to do with that. Um, But there is a common association here in in the Gospels, again, not always, between uh, demons and sickness and illness, various kinds of illness. 
I'd be, you know, I'd be curious to hear what Jordan makes of this connection as well. But um, I, my suspicion is the idea is that demons are ruling over the world, right? They're the rulers. Uh, they're they're ruling over uh, over the world as another kingdom, and Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. And so demons, what they do, right? The spiritual forces of evil, in Paul's language, they bring about all kinds of destruction and death and illness, anything associated with death, they bring about. So when Jesus comes with, you know, as the son of David, as the king of Israel, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, he's disrupting the rule of the, of the demons, hmm. which involves then uh, restoring people's body and health in the gospels, because it indicates that he is defeating these rulers and powers. Um, I don't so know. you have in verse... 23, can this be the son of David? That's, That's right. what the crowds are saying. Yeah, yeah. So the son of David is a, he's a military ruler who, reckon, who represents the kingdom of God. But now Jesus as the son of David is fighting a spiritual battle to That's bring right. in the kingdom of heaven. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What do you, Jordan, what do you, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's definitely something going on here with this issue of, um, demonic rule or something like that because one of the things that i've noticed about matthew before is in the temptation narrative matthew's version and luke's version are really close except for the order being different um if i remember right i think luke ends with the like he's brought to the temple parapet um but the final temptation in matthew is he's shown the kingdoms of the world by the mm -hmm. devil and he's right. offered them and I've, you know, every time I, I read that, I can't help but be struck by the fact that that implies that the kingdoms of the world are the devils to give. Mm. Um, and so there's something happening there because it's it's only after the temptation in Matthew that Jesus then begins his kingdom of heaven ministry. Um, mm. And it, it's like directly following that as though that is, you know, things are kind of like, the clouds are peeled back and he sees things for the way that they are or something. And then all of a sudden um, he's proclaiming the kingdom. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of like that idea. Also, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but there is really yeah. interesting text. A few commentators refer to that, that might be relevant here, which is Testament of Solomon. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was wondering if that's kind of what you, you had in mind um, because that's mm -hmm. an exorcistic text. It's Solomon, the son of David. Yes, that's right. Um, that's right. Yeah. 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 Explain that for us. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's that's really important. Uh, this is disputed, of course. Right. So uh, <laughs> but my, yeah, my read of this is that as when you think of son of David, well, the you might say the immediate son of David in the Bible is Solomon. Right. Who's a king. But in early Jewish literature, like Jordan just mentioned in the Testament of Solomon, um, and also in the wisdom of Solomon, there, there's like a hint there, right? And Josephus mm -hmm. also ta talks about this when he interprets uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, is that Solomon becomes invested with these kinds of exorcistic powers, the ability to cast out demons and to subjugate them and rule over them. And also at the same time with healing, hmm. is the two things actually come together for Solomon's uh, exorcistic powers. And so it, it, it seems like maybe what's going on in the Gospels here, if Jesus is the son of David, right, right the, the Solomonic figure, well, he has this great power to exercise demons and to uh, heal people. But Solomon also pops up in this text, if you right. keep reading, right? Yeah, verses 42 yeah. and 43. Yeah, and he's named, in, he's named in the genealogy too, right? Um, David, the father yes. of Solomon. That's so, right. yeah, I mean, there's something happening yeah. there, I think. Yeah. yeah, we can swing back to 42 and 43, sure. but just to read it now, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. Yeah. And so in some of these Jewish texts, Solomon's wisdom is precisely in his ability to be able to rule over the demons and to know how to cast them out and bring about healing. It's really interesting, right? Yeah. 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 Also I'm, very I'm interesting really with those. Yeah, also very interesting with those who think of wisdom literature as being <laughs> primarily focused on non-theological, non-ritualistic, yeah, right, non-religious right. things and yes. all just rationalistic. Yeah. You won't have that, right, Well, No, I'm not going to have a piece of that at all. Uh, great. Okay, so is there anything else, though, that we need to be thinking about when we're thinking about this connection potentially between demon possession and illness? Like, are there things... 
when people are thinking about it today that they need to potentially be careful about when they make that connection? Yeah, I, I think there is. I mean, one of the things I, I, I think it, it, teaching these texts requires some sensitivity, um, mostly because, it, and I'm going to talk from um, Wheaton College where I teach, which is Christian college. Um, disability is a part of people's lives. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not like it's just something that exists in the text. And when we try to make too strong a connection between, you know, disability and demonic possession, we need to be sensitive to the fact that, but there are people who experience disability and that's a part of who they are. And, you know, within the context of Wheaton College, and so that's my context and Christian liberal arts college, it's important for people to understand that, you know, that's a part of who they are and it's part of their identity, um, that they're made in the image of God. Um, and, and so I, I, I think that as much as it's important to understand um, what's going on here narratively and historically, at the same time, we need to be sensitive and careful about how we talk about disability so we don't turn texts that are meant to be liberating and meant to be mm-hmm. encouraging to people into texts of terror, which make them think that there's something wrong with them and that it's not just, you know, something physical, but also something demonic. I mean, that's something that... Um, as I go on as a teacher and, you know, I'm still a rookie, by, you know, by, by academic standards. Um, but it's something that in my time here, Whedon, I've, I've very much learned is important. Um, just have some sensitivity around how we talk about these things. Mm. Yeah. Thank, thanks for that, Jordan. Now, how does Jesus's response work here? Right. So he uh, heals this man and casts out, you know, casts out the demon and the people are astonished and they say, could this be the son of David? And, then we're told in verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Um, how does, now Jesus respond, he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out, therefore they will be your judges. Uh, I mean, I'm having a bit of trouble tracking Jesus's response, right? I mean, isn't their point that Jesus is doing so by the power of another demon or a greater demon? And that their exorcists, you know, and that their own exorcists are not like what, 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 what's the deal here? Yeah, I think so. That, that is a good point. I, I think what's happening here is Jesus's point is that like demons are getting cast out, right? And so the question right. is, if he said, if you're saying that about me, then shouldn't you think in general about how demons are cast out? Like I think that's sort of the logic. It might not be. Um, I mean, it might, not all of us might be convinced by that logic, but, <laughs> sure. but that does seem to be the logic that he's saying, you know, well, if you're saying that I'm casting demons out by Beelzebul, well, what about all these other people who are also casting out demons? Um, I think the Greek says literally something like your own children who cast out demons. Um, how are they doing it? And his point then, I think the, the logic that follows um you know, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? That actually does make quite a bit of sense. If if Satan is going around like casting out demons, then it isn't that dividing Satan's kingdom, isn't that making him weaker? And so Jesus's point here is, you know, look whose side I'm on, right? Um, the thing I find really interesting about this, though, is that going back to um, some of the things we were just talking about in this issue of demonic rule is that this is another passage that should sort of stop us dead in our tracks and maybe think back to that temptation narrative because of the clear implication here that Satan has a kingdom. Um, mm-hmm. And so you get this conflict. It's not just between Jesus and Satan, it's now between the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, uh, as Matthew calls it, and the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of Satan, depending on how you want to understand it. Hmm. So there's there's something again happening there where it's this like escalated uh, level of conflict. On the one hand, you get these like sort of earlier conflicts, which are, you know, around the law and things like that. But that that's one thing. This is something else, right? This is far beyond... Um, these sort of human dialogues around the law. And now this is about something totally different. Um, it's about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan um, and, and Jesus proclaiming that kingdom of heaven against the kingdom of Satan. Mm. So that, that's kind of how I'm, how I'm reading it here. Mm. Okay. 
Uh, now, easy question for you, Jordan. No problem. Uh, verse 31 says, Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what is this unforgivable sin, this blasphemy against the Spirit? Yeah, boy, that is – so that is a, definitely an, another candidate for like – Toughest part of the passage. <laughs> um, this is an interesting one. Because, so I, I actually went and looked at a, a few commentaries just because I was curious, what do other people say about this? You know, there's a few ideas that I've had for a long time, but, yeah. you know, what, what do people say? And it turns out that there isn't a whole lot of agreement over exactly what this means. Um, I thought that it was really interesting seeing what the early church thought. And so early Christian texts read this in all sorts of interesting ways. One of the most interesting, I think, was the Didache, um, where it, it says that this unfor unforgivable sin is speaking out against someone who is prophesying in the spirit. I thought that that was kind of interesting. I, okay. I'd never um, seen that before. Sure. Um, but, I mean, what is going on here? One of the things that I think – I tend to, to see this as following the logic of this passage. I think it's hard to read it apart from the narrative that it's kind of embedded mm -hmm. in. Um, and so the, the logic here, I think, um, it has to follow, um, from verse 28 when he says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. I think, I think the point that is being made here in Matthew's narrative is that it's one thing to sort of speak out against like the son of man, Right. Um, that is Jesus, or some commentators suggest that that son of man means just like human beings. It's one thing to speak out against a human being. Um, but whoever speaks out against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It's, it's this escalation of, you know, who are you really accusing here? Um, it's not the same as just sort of getting into an argument with Jesus or something like that. This is accusing the work of the Spirit, which is bringing about the kingdom of God um, right. and saying that it's demonic. And so I, I think it's, he's, he's heightening it here. So I tend to read it in light of that. Again, there's a, there's about 10 different ways to read this passage, sure. but I want to read it in, in connection. <laughs> yeah. with the well, and I wonder if in the context, this thing we were just discussing about a kingdom being divided against itself, not mm -hmm. standing might be behind this here. Cause as you're saying, yeah. if the spirit is doing this work, building this kingdom, defeating this, demonic kingdom yeah but then people are tearing it down yeah then it's not going to yeah. be able to stand yeah it's almost like you're like you're if you're blaspheming against the spirit it seems like you're kind of uh, railing against the very means that is bringing about god's kingdom so what hope could there be for someone who does that in 42, Isaiah 42, the citation of Isaiah 42, of course, uh, here's my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him mm -hmm. and he'll proclaim justice. So here we now see right. the demonstration of the spirit on the servant, on the son of David, right, who is bringing about justice to the nations mm -hmm. and defeating the powers. Um, but I do have a hard time with that son of man. It's like, it, so that's yeah. one way you took it, Jordan, as son of man is a human being. Okay. Yeah. So you can say something against a human being, but it, against the spirit, that's unforgivable. But if son of man is a messianic title, which is how I mm -hmm. tend to take it, I, I, I confess, Jordan, just about every time I gloss son of man in the gospels, I always take it as a messianic title. I, that's you know, just so, kind of, so do I, and that includes okay. you. So, yeah, no, I'm actually with you. Sure. <laughs> I think that's it that way, for sure. Sure. So, but, you know, you're right. There are some scholars who take Son of Man as just a human being. But if it is a messianic title, then it's very hard for me to understand the logic going on here. It's like, how can you say something against the Son of David or the King? Um, and that's forgivable because you're allying yourself against the kingdom of God in that yeah, sense. Yeah. But then, it, you know, it's unforgivable if you say something against the spirit who's also bringing about the kingdom of God. That's where I'm like totally lost and flabbergasted. Hmm. Yeah, good point. I, I mean, I wonder, <laughs> this, this is just me relying too heavily on narrative again. But I wonder if like, if you think about how this, there is something different about this conflict and then the conflicts okay. that come before where like, I mean, there's still pretty heated discussions. Like verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. But like 
but but there is something different about that, right? It's okay. there, there's a disagreement over the law. They're accusing him of maybe breaking the Sabbath, but that's different from like, oh, you're you're like basically an agent of Beelzebul. Like that. I see. Maybe there's something different because okay. of, if you think about how this saying might distinguish these two different kinds of conflicts, that's the yeah, only I like thing that. We, can, we can figure here. No, I like that. I think that's a, that's a yeah. helpful way forward. Yeah, great. How does Matthew 12 verses 43 to 45, we kind of have the, you know, these verses about unclean spirits leaving a person and then yeah. returning with seven, you know, what is it, seven more demons uh, fit here. Like, how does that, how does that work? Is it just a passage that kind of stands alone or uh, why is this situated right here? Yeah. So I, I think, again, there's something going on in terms of the narrative, um, there's a few things that now this this passage is, is also just difficult to interpret because is it actually about exorcism or is it a parable because it ends with the so will right. it also so will it be also with this evil generation right. and right. I I tend to think that that is how to best interpret it at least as it exists within Matthew um, because you get the sign of Jonah thing right um, mm-hmm. there's a an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign going on in that sign of Jonah pericope or passage um, that comes after the tree and its fruit, you know, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. And you have these conflicts narratives before it. So I'm tending to think that this is meant to be a pronouncement um, about, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a piece with, that whole scribes and Pharisees thing and the evil and adulterous generation. I think it follows from that, at least as it exists in Matthew. So is it saying something like, um, you know, if, if Jesus is casting out demons and then there's no, you know, repentance or something like that to follow, then isn't that just going to make things worse? Um, Isn't his his ministry going to be ineffective? But again, depends on whether you, how how much weight you play, place on that. Um, so will yeah. it be also. Yeah, it's almost like the judgment that happens then is well that that the generation gets seven more spirits to come upon it if it rejects the very means by which you know the evil spirits are cast out. That that's yeah. kind of the ration, the narratival rationale that you're yeah you're developing. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, let's move into chapter thirteen and. All of the parables that we have there, and we don't have time to go into each of these parables <laughs> in depth. Uh, so we've got, you know, the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, which are the longest two, but then there are these shorter ones about mustard seeds and yeast and treasures hidden in fields and other things as well. So is there something that holds all of these different parables together, some kind of major theme that threads them together? Yeah, I think there's a few things. The, the, the obvious one, I guess, is there's a lot of kingdom of heaven here. Now, n- not all of them, I think, are explicitly kingdom of heaven parables. Like, okay. I don't think, I don't think they're all like directly compared, um, in the parable themselves to the kingdom. Um, because the parable of sower, I don't think is, but then in the explanation of the parable of the sower, it is mm. explicitly about the kingdom. So there's a whole lot. It says lot. in verse 19, anyone who hears the word that- of the kingdom. In the sower. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. So there's, there's the there. blue line. Yeah, which is which is the kingdom, um, which seems to connect them all together. So this this is kind of interesting because you Jesus never really does define exactly what the kingdom of heaven is. And that's you know, that's been a long standing problem in exegesis and also in historical Jesus studies. What does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? Well, he seemed in the context of the narrative, people seem to have a sense that there is something that is the kingdom of God or heaven. Um, and, and this seems to illustrate that for them. The other thing that's going on here, though, is that he's there's a, another through line, which is that there's a bunch of these parables where there's something surprising that happens. Um, the kingdom is presented in a surprising way. Um, it's something hidden. Or, you know, you get this, the parable of the weeds and the wheat, it's, it's like a mixed body or something that, um, you know, there's, there's weeds amongst the wheat. Um, the mustard seed is this whole, I find the mustard seed just be a weird story, but one that's really interesting (laughs) because it's this tiny seed. And then I really like Matthew's version because it's, it's not tree. It's when it is grown, it is 
the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, which is a little bit different. So it, it's the king of the shrubs, basically. And then it becomes a tree. Like it, it's, so, it's such a great shrub, it turns into a tree. So there's a total trans, utter transformation going on. Um, I kind of like seeing gods realize eschatology here a little bit. I know that's kind of out of fashion, but um, this idea that there's something about the kingdom of God that is so utterly unexpected and so utterly strange, um, it, it takes root in surprising places. The, this great tree came from a shrub, which came from a mustard seed. <laughs> I kind of love that. It's just this unsurprising story. <laughs> that's neat. Um what, why do you think Jesus speaks in parables? I mean, does he speak to them because they already don't understand? Or is he speaking to them to keep them from understanding? Or is there like both? Or I don't know. It's kind of an odd uh, odd thing to think about. Yeah. I I hate to admit that I don't like that passage. Like I want to <laughs> like everything. Um, but, you know, uh, I've, I've been bothered by this one for years. Um Mostly because, like, it, it, there's there's a certain logical problem here, which is that the parables actually seem to do a good job of of illustrating things. Like, I think right. they actually explain things <laughs> well. Um, so, you know, so what's what's the deal with the purpose of the parables? Something that that I have noticed here is um, I think there's a difference between Mark and Matthew's version, where I think okay. Mark has its. Um, he speaks in parables so that they they won't understand. Whereas in Matthew, it's because he speaks in parables because they don't understand. And mm. um, you know, I within Matthew that actually kind of makes some sense. So he he has to speak in parables because of their unbelief or because of their lack of understanding, their lack of perception. And so the parables help to illustrate things, even though they don't understand. Okay. And then there's also this this kind of like internal and external thing going on. It's interesting to see which parables are delivered to the disciples, what he tells them as opposed to right. which he gives to the people. So that's, that's what I think is going on in Matthew. I do think that the historical Jesus though, used parables the way that other Jewish teachers um, would have used them. That's not to say that Matthew's not being historical here. It's just sure. to say that I think that the parables actually generally do a good job of illustrating things. Of, <laughs> of, of, you know, this yeah. is what the kingdom is like. Yes. Yeah. Does the citation from Psalm 78 verse two help us at all thinking this through? I mean, I guess Matthew cites it because he thinks that that will help us understand what Jesus is doing with the parables. So I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. Matthew sees this being fulfilled in what Jesus is doing with these parables here. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wonder if it's the whole thing about from the foundations of the world, it, that I think connects nicely to the idea of the parables as revealing the kingdom in some way um, that, that it's that even teaching the parables is a way of revealing what has been hidden. Um, and so I kind of like that in light of the idea that it's, he teaches in parables because of their lack of understanding as opposed to, um, to create that under, lack of understanding. Um, it, right. it, the parables in some way reveal something. So we then come in chapter 14 to the death of John the Baptist, and it seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, is there any rhyme and re or reason for uh, Matthew situating it where he does and why he's what he's doing with this story here? Yeah, I mean, this is such a strange story. I mean, first, first of all, the story is like Herod is sitting around. He hears about Jesus and he's like, this is John the Baptist. And he's come back. Right. Head, which is like kind of a weird <laughs> thing to think. Um, and what seems to be going on here is it's a, it might be a flashback because it's poor Herod had arrested John, bound him and put him in prison. Right. Um, but the thing to remember here is that there is this kind of like side story of John the Baptist that kind of comes to its culmination here that starts, you know, way back with the baptism. Um, remember what I said earlier about chapter 11, where John the Baptist shows up again as a character and he's in prison. Uh, and, and so you actually get this kind of nice bookending of this section um, of, of teachings between um, John the Baptist stories. And so it kind of makes sense that John the Baptist story needs to, at some point, come to its conclusion 
Um, why it happens here is, you know, maybe anyone's guess, but <laughs> it does seem to be in terms of the, the ordering, um, it separates off this section as kind of this is um, sandwiched between these two John the Baptist stories. But yeah, what a strange way to introduce it. This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. I've wondered about that before. You've got kind of this whole idea of Jesus being John. You've got this birthday party story. It's just so fascinating. Do you think that that uh, is, is this potentially hinting at what we'll find later with uh, Jesus and, you know, in the resurrection in the gospel of Matthew, right? So you have uh, Herod wondering if John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And then you have kind of maybe some parallels with anticipating, you know, Jesus being killed and then uh, raised from the dead. Do you see other, are there other potential parallels there between John and Jesus? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's also the case now it's important to to note this is Herod Antipas, um, but it also is a continuation of this conflict, right? That starts in chapter two um, with Herod the great, who's Herod Antipas's father. Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to see this as an escalation that maybe then hints at what is going to happen to Jesus because Herod, Herod Antipas, yes, is a local ruler um, and he is part of the Herodian dynasty, but the Herodians are very much a part of the Roman imperial machine. Um, people at the time seem to have understood them that way. Uh, Herod Antipas is an agent of Rome. He's raised in Rome and educated in Rome. Um, and so the fact that Jesus later ends up before Pilate and dies right. on a Roman cross, I mean, there, there, there's definitely some parallels here. And you're right. There's this kind of sly hinting at um, resurrection in this story. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's something happening. It's also interesting that Herod here is kind of reluctant, right? He doesn't really want to behead John. And same with Pilate. Pilate is also reluctant. Yes. He's kind of not really convinced that uh, Jesus should be crucified. Yeah. Which I yeah. think is another interesting kind of narratival parallel. Yeah. We also have mention of King here several times and we've just been talking about kingdom and uh, yeah. kingdoms being divided against one another though. I'm racking my brain trying to see how it could actually fit, fit into in a lot of those themes yeah. because at least here, it seems like, well, the King has his way. Right. Uh, and he's not been defeated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but maybe that's the point. There still is more, story to be told here in the gospel and all of that we've all we've just described has not yet come to fulfillment and we're being reminded here yeah no i mean it, it is interesting also if um if, if we have this kingdom motif um, it could be we're overreading as well but then you have john the baptist is killed it seems like then well that you know the good kingdom has been defeated but there's hints oh maybe he's been raised from the dead and that kind of gives you potentially some hope that, you know, the kingdom of God has not been, you know, yeah. fully done away with. Great. It's going to be yeah. resurrected. Yeah. Well, yeah. Jordan, thanks so much. As you, we can see right here, uh, this conversation with you has helped us to see new things uh, in Matthew and think about new avenues of interpretation. And so it's been super helpful for us. Mm -hmm. And I hope for our listeners as well. We like to conclude our episodes by asking our guests for a blurb that genre that biblical scholars seem to have perfected of recommending things in a pithy way, sometimes going over the top a little bit. Um, so do you have something that you'd like to recommend us? It could be a book, but it could also be something else, a TV show or movie, a life hack, a, a place to go dig in Palestine. Uh, what would you like to recommend? Sure. Well, you know, recently I've been working on things that are a little bit different um, I've, I'm contributing um, some work on Asian American biblical interpretation. Um, I've got a chapter and I get to do Acts for the New Testament in color, oh, which is okay. a multi-ethnic one volume commentary. Acts is the longest one. Um, and so I think I'd be remiss if I didn't blurb some of the awesome work um, that's been done by Filipino and Filipino American scholars. There's mm -hmm. actually um, a really good book called Passion and Revolution um, by Reynaldo Ileto, which is, um, he's a historian and it tells, it goes through the history of um, anti-colonial revolutions in the Philippines and looks at the influence of the passion narrative in the gospels on uh, anti-colonial revolutions in Filipino history. And for me, that's been just a fantastic read thinking about, um, you know, how narratives still continue to impact the world around us and how, you know, 
passion narratives like the one in Matthew, I've continued to inspire all sorts of, you know, amazing and I think important things in the world. So that would be my blurb. Um, I think that's a fantastic book. Thanks, Jordan. Well, thanks for uh, taking us on this guided uh, tour through Matthew chapter 12 through a bit of 14. Um, And thank you listeners for joining us on this tour. Uh, If you like this conversation, uh, well, we would love for you to give us your best five-star rating. Um, maybe and it really does. I mean, it is really helpful. And if you're there, you've got your iPhone in front of you. You yeah. just go to the app and you can go and put that five-star. It couldn't be easier to do, but it can be super helpful for getting the word out about the podcast to yes. others. And it could help, you know, with the exorcism of demons, you know. I mean, there are all kinds of things that you might unlock with your five-star review. <laughs> Who knows? (laughs) Well, thanks for listening. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelder, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.